Chapter Seventeen of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. Harry Temple sat in his office the next morning with his feet upon the table and his wooden-armed chair tilted back against the wall. He had letters to write, a number of them that should go out with the afternoon coach to reach the night packet. There were at least three men he ought to go and see at once if he would do his best for his employers, and the office he sat in was by no means in the best of order. But his feet were elevated comfortably on the table, and he was deep in the pages of a story of the French court, its loves and hates and intrigues. It was therefore with annoyance that he looked up at the opening of the office door. But the frown changed to apprehension, as he saw who was his visitor. He brought the chair-legs suddenly to the floor, and his own legs followed them swiftly. David Spafford was not a man before whom another would sit with his feet on a table, even to transact business. There was a look of startled inquiry on Harry Temple's face. For an instant his self-complacency was shaken. He hesitated, wondering what tack to take. Perhaps, after all, his alarm was unnecessary. Marcia likely had been too frightened to tell of what had occurred. He noticed the broad shoulder, the lean, active body, the keen eye, and the grave poise of his visitor, and thought he would hardly care to fight a duel with that man. It was natural for him to think at once of a duel on account of the French court life from which his mind had just emerged. A flash of wonder passed through his mind whether it would be swords or pistols, and then he set himself to face the other man. David Spafford stood for a full minute and looked into the face of the man he had come to shame. He looked at him with a calm eye and brow, but with a growing contempt that did not need words to express it. Harry Temple felt the color rise in his cheek, and his soul quaked for an instant. Then his habitual conceit arose, and he tried to parry with his eye that keen piercing gaze of the other. It must have lasted a full minute, though it seemed to Mr. Temple it was five at the least. He made an attempt to offer his visitor a chair, but it was not noticed. David Spafford looked his man through and through, and knew him for exactly what he was. At last he spoke, quietly, in a tone that was too courteous to be contemptuous, but it humiliated the listener more even than contempt. It would be well for you to leave town at once. That was all. The listener felt that it was a command. His wrath arose hotly, and beat itself against the calm exterior of his visitor's gaze in a look that was brazen enough to have faced a whole town of accusers. Harry Temple could look innocent and handsome when he chose. "'I do not understand you, sir,' he said. "'That is a most extraordinary statement.' "'It would be well for you to leave town at once.' This time the command was imperative. Harry's eyes blazed. "'Why?' he asked it with that impertinent tilt to his chin which usually angered his opponent in any argument. Once he could break that steady, iron self-control, he felt he would have the best of things. He could easily persuade David Spafford that everything was all right, 
if he could get him off his guard and make him angry. An angry man could do little but bluster. You understand very well, David replied, his voice still steady and his gaze not swerving. Indeed, well, this is most extraordinary, said Harry, losing control of himself again. Of what do you accuse me, may I inquire? Of nothing that your own heart does not accuse you, said David, and somehow there was more than human indignation in the gaze now. There was pity, a sense of shame for another soul who could lower himself to do unseemly things. Before that look, the blood crept into Harry's cheek again. An uncomfortable sensation entirely new was stealing over him. A sense of sin. No, not that exactly. A sense that he had made a mistake, perhaps. He never was very hard upon himself, even when the evidence was clear against him. It angered him to feel humiliated. What a fuss to make about a little thing! What a tiresome old cad to care about a little flirtation with his wife! He wished he had let the pretty baby alone entirely. She was of no finer stuff than many another who had accepted his advances with pleasure. He stiffened his neck and replied with much haughtiness. My heart accuses me of nothing, sir. I assure you I consider your words an insult. I demand satisfaction for your insulting language, sir. Harry Temple had never fought a duel and had never been present when others fought, but that was the language in which a challenge was usually delivered in the French novels. It is not a matter for discussion, said David Spafford, utterly ignoring the other's blustering words. I am fully informed as to all that occurred yesterday afternoon, and I tell you once more, it would be well for you to leave town at once. I have nothing further to say. David turned and walked toward the door, and Harry stood, ignored, angry, crestfallen, and watched him until he reached the door. You had better ask your informant further of her part in the matter, he hissed suddenly, an open sneer on his face, and a covert implication of deep meaning. David turned, his face flashing with righteous indignation. The man who was withered by the scorn of that glance wished heartily that he had not uttered the false sentence. He felt the smallness of his own soul during the instant of silence in which his visitor stood looking at him. Then David spoke deliberately. I knew you were a knave, said he, but I did not suppose you were also a coward. A man who is not a coward will not try to put the blame upon a woman, especially upon an innocent one. You, sir, will leave town this evening. Any business further than you can settle between this and that, I will see properly attended to. I warn you, sir, it will be unwise for you to remain longer than till the evening coach. Perfectly courteous were David's tones, keen command was in his eye, and determination in every line of his face. Harry could not recover himself to reply, could not master his frenzy of anger and humiliation to face the righteous look of his accuser. Before he realized it, David was gone. He stood by the window and watched him go down the street with rapid, firm tread and upright bearing. 
Every line in that erect form spoke of determination. The conviction grew within him that the last words of his visitor were true, and that it would be wise for him to leave town. He rebelled at the idea. He did not wish to leave, for business matters were in such shape, or rather in such chaos, that it would be extremely awkward for him to meet his employers and explain his desertion at that time. Moreover, there were still several homes in the town open to him whenever he chose, where there were many attractions. It was a lazy pleasant life he had been leading here, fully trusted and wholly disloyal to the trust, troubled by no uneasy overseers, not even his own conscience, dined and smiled upon with lovely languishing eyes. He did not care to go, even though he had decried the town as dull and monotonous. But, on the other hand, things had occurred, not the unfortunate little mistake of yesterday, of course, but others, more serious things, that he would hardly care to have brought to the light of day, especially through the keen sarcastic columns of David Spafford's paper. He had seen other sinners brought to a bloodless retribution in those columns by dauntless weapons of sarcasm and wit, which in David Spafford's hands could be made to do valiant work. He did not care to be humiliated in that way. He could not brazen it out. He was convinced that the man meant what he said, and from what he knew of his influence, he felt that he would leave no stone unturned till he had made the place too hot to hold him. Only Harry Temple himself knew how easy that would be to do, for no one else knew how many mistakes Harry had made, and he, unfortunately for himself, did not know how many of them were not known by any who could harm him. He stood a long time clinking some sixpences and shillings together in his pocket, and scowling down the street after David had disappeared from sight. "'Blame that little pink-cheeked baby-faced fool!' he said at last, turning on his heel with a sigh. "'I might have known she was too goody-goody. Such people ought to die young before they grow up to make fools of other people. Bah! Think of a wife like that with no spirit of her own. A baby, merely a baby!' Nevertheless, in his secret heart, he knew he honored Marcia, and felt a true shame that she had looked into his tarnished soul. Then he looked round about upon his papers that represented a whole week's hard work, and maybe more before they were cleared away, and reflected how much easier after all it would be to get up a good excuse and go away, leaving all this to some poor drudge who should be sent here in his place. He looked around again, and his eyes lighted upon his book. He remembered the exciting crisis in which he had left the heroine, and down he sat to his story again. At least there was nothing demanding attention this moment. He need not decide what he would do. If he went, there were few preparations to make. He would toss some things into his carpet-bag, and pretend to have been summoned to see a sick and dying relative, a long-lost brother or something. It would be easy to invent one when the time came. Then he would leave directions for the rest of his things to be packed if he did not return, and get rid of the trouble of it all. As for the letters, if he was going, what use to bother with them? Let them wait till his successor should come. 
it mattered little to him whether his employers suffered for his negligence or not, so long as he finished his story. Besides, it would not do to let that cad think he had frightened him. He would pretend he was not going, at least during his hours of grace. So he picked up his book and went on reading. At noon, he sauntered back to his boarding-house as usual for his dinner, having professed an unusually busy morning to those who came into the office on business and made appointments with them for the next day. This had brought him much satisfaction as the morning wore away and he was left free to his book, and so before dinner he had come to within a very few pages of the end. After a leisurely dinner he sauntered back to the office again, rejoicing in the fact that circumstances had so arranged themselves that he had passed David Spafford in front of the newspaper office, and given him a most elaborate and friendly bow in the presence of four or five bystanders. David's look in return had meant volumes, and decided Harry Temple to do as he had been ordered, not, of course, because he had been ordered to do so, but because it would be an easier thing to do. In fact, he made up his mind that he was weary of this part of the country, he went back to his book. About the middle of the afternoon, he finished the last pages. He rose up with alacrity then, and began to think what he should do. He glanced around the room, sought out a few papers, took some derogatypes of girls from a drawer of his desk, gave a farewell glance around the dismal little room that had seen so much shirking for the past few months, and then went out and locked the door. He paused at the corner. Which way should he go? He did not care to go back to the office, for his book was done, and he scarcely needed to go to his room at his boarding-place yet either, for the afternoon was but half over, and he wished his departure to appear to be entirely unpremeditated. A daring thought came into his head. He would walk past David Spafford's house. He would let Marcia see him if possible. He would show them that he was not afraid in the least. He even meditated going in and explaining to Marcia that she had made a great mistake, that he had been merely admiring her, and that there was no harm in anything he had said or done yesterday, that he was exceedingly grieved and mortified that she should have mistaken his meaning for an insult, and so on and so on. He well knew how to make such honeyed talk when he chose, but the audacity of the thing was a trifle too much for even his bold nature, so he satisfied himself by strolling in a leisurely manner by the house. When he was directly opposite to it, he raised his eyes casually and bowed and smiled with his most graceful air. True, he did not see anyone, for Marcia had caught sight of him as she was coming out upon the stoop and had fled into her own room with the door buttoned. She was watching unseen from behind the folds of her curtain, but he made the bow as complete as though a whole family had been greeting him from the windows. Marcia, poor child, thought he must see her, and she felt frozen to the spot, and stared wildly through the little fold of her curtain, with trembling hands and weak knees, till he was passed. Well pleased at himself, the young man walked on, knowing that at least three prominent citizens had seen him bow and smile, and that they would be witnesses 
against anything David might say to the contrary, that he was on friendly terms with Mrs. Spafford. Hannah Heath was sitting on the front stoop with her knitting. She often sat there dressed daintily of an afternoon. Her hands were white and looked well against the blue yarn she was knitting. Besides, there was something domestic and sentimental in a stocking. It gave a cozy, homey air to a woman, Hannah considered. So she sat and knitted and smiled at whomsoever passed by, luring many in to sit and talk with her, so that the stockings never grew rapidly, but always kept at about the same stage. If it had been Miranda, Grandmother Heath would have made sharp remarks about the length of time it took to finish that blue stocking, but as it was Hannah, it was all right. Hannah sat upon the stoop and knitted as Harry Temple came by. Now Hannah was not so great a favorite with Harry as Harry with Hannah. She was of the kind who was conquered too easily, and he did not consider it worth his while to waste time upon her simperings usually. But this afternoon was different. He had nowhere to go for a little while, and Hannah's appearance on the stoop was opportune and gave him an idea. He would lounge there with her. Perchance fortune would favor him again, and David Spafford would pass by and see him. There would be one more opportunity to stare insolently at him and defy him before he bent his neck to obey. David had given him the day in which to do what he would, and he would make no move until the time was over and the coach he had named departed. But he knew that then he would bring down retribution. In just what form that retribution would come, he was not quite certain, but he knew it would be severe. So when Hannah smiled upon him, Harry Temple stepped daintily across the mud in the road and came and sat down beside her. He toyed with her knitting, caught one end of her plump white hands, the one on the side away from the street, and held it while Hannah pretended not to notice and drooped her long eyelashes in a telling way. Hannah knew how. She had been at it a good many years. So he sat, toward five o'clock, when David came by and bowed gravely to Hannah, but seemed not to see Harry. Harry let his eyes follow the tall figure in an insolent stare. "'What a dough-faced cad that man is,' he said lazily. No wonder his little pinked-cheek wife seeks other society. Handsome baby, though, isn't she? Hannah pricked up her ears. Her loss of David was too recent not to cause her extreme jealousy of his pretty young wife. Already she fairly hated her. Her upbringing in the atmosphere of Grandmother Heath's sarcastic, ill-natured gossip had prepared her to be quick to see meaning in any insinuation. She looked at him keenly, archly for a moment, then replied with drooping gaze and coquettish manner, You should not blame anyone for enjoying your company. Hannah stole sly glances to see how he took this, but Harry was an old hand and proof against such scrutiny. He only shrugged his shoulder carelessly, as though he dropped all blame like a garment that he had no need for. "'And what's the matter with David?' asked Hannah, watching David as he mounted his own steps, and thinking how often she had watched that tall form go down the street, 
and thought of him as destined to belong to her. The mortification that he had chosen someone else was not yet forgotten. It amounted almost to a desire for revenge. Harry lingered longer than he had intended. Hannah begged him to remain to supper, but he declined, and when she pressed him to do so, he looked troubled and said that he was expecting a letter and must hurry back to see if it came in the afternoon coach. He told her that a dear friend, a beloved cousin, was lying very ill, and he might be summoned at any moment to his bedside, and Hannah said some comforting little things in a caressing voice, and hoped he should find the letter saying the cousin was better. Then he hurried away. It was easy at his boarding-house to say he had been called away, and he rushed up to his room and threw some necessaries into his carpet-bag, scattering things around the room and helping out the impression that he was called away in a great hurry. When he was ready, he looked at his watch. It was growing late. The evening coach left in half an hour. He knew its route well. It started at the village inn and went down the old turnpike, stopping here and there to pick up passengers. There was always a convocation when it started. Perhaps David Spafford would be there and witness his obedience to the command given him. He set his lips and made up his mind to escape that at least. He would cheat his adversary of that satisfaction. It would involve a sacrifice. He would have to go without his supper, and he could smell the frying bacon coming up the stairs but it would help the illusion, and he could perhaps get something on the way when the coach stopped to change horses. He rushed downstairs and told his landlady that he must start at once, as he must see a man before the coach went, and she, poor lady, had no chance to suggest that he leave her a little deposit on the sum of his board which he already owed her. There was perhaps some method in his hurry for that reason also. It always bothered him to pay his bills. He had so many other ways of spending his money. So he hurried away and caught a ride in a farm wagon going toward the crossroads. When it turned off, he walked a little way until another wagon came along, finally crossed several fields at a breathless pace, and caught the coach just as it was leaving the crossroads, which was the last stopping place anywhere near the village. He climbed up beside the driver, still in a breathless condition, and detailed to him how he had received word, just before the coach started, by a messenger who came across country on horseback, that his cousin was dying. After he had answered the driver's minutest questions, he sat back and reflected upon his course with satisfaction. He was off, and he had not been seen nor questioned by a single citizen, and by tomorrow night his story as he had told it to the driver would be fully known and circulated through the place he had just left. The stage driver was one of the best means of advertisement. It was well to give him full particulars. The driver, after he had satisfied his curiosity about the young man by his side, and his reasons for leaving town so hastily, began to wax eloquent upon the one theme which now occupied his spare moments and his fluent tongue, the subject of a projected railroad. Whether some of the sentiments he uttered were his own, or whether he had but borrowed from others, they were at least uttered with force and apparent conviction, 
and many a traveller sat and listened, as they were retailed and viewed, the subject from the standpoint of the loud-mouthed coachman. A little later, Tony Weller, called by someone, the best beloved of all coachmen, uttered much the same sentiments in the following words. I consider that the railroad is unconstitutional, and an invader of privileges. As to the comfort, as an old coachman I may say it, there's the comfort of sittin' in a harm-chair a-lookin' at brick walls and heaps o' mud, never comin' to a public-ouse, never seein' a glass o' ale, never goin' through a pike, never meetin' a change o' no kind, hosses or otherwise, but always comin' to a place, ven you comes to vun at all, the weary picture o' the last. As to the honour and dignity o' travellin', ver can that be without a coachman, and butts the rail to such coachmen as is sometimes forced to go by it, but an outrage and an insult. As to the engine, a nasty, wheezin', gaspin', puffin', bustin' monster, always out of breath, with a shiny green and gold back, like an unpleasant beetle. As to the engine, as is always a-pourin' out red-ot coals at night, and black smoke in the day, the sensiblest thing it does, in my opinion, is ven there's something in the vey, it sets up that air frightful scream which seems to say, Now here's two hundred and forty passengers in the wery greatest extremity o' danger, and here's their two hundred and forty screams in bun. But such sentiments as these troubled Harry Temple not one whit. He cared not whether the present century had a railroad or whether it travelled by foot. He would not lift a white finger to help it along or hinder. As the talk went on, he was considering how and where he might get his supper. End of chapter 17